Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us, this time in New Haven, Connecticut. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So uh, before we get to our data points, uh, let me just say to listeners that our live show in New York City, it's taking place on October 25th. I've mentioned this before. Uh, if you're not in New York, you can watch the show on live stream, not just as it's happening, but anytime on demand for a full week following the show. Either way, for tickets, you will find links in our show notes. So check that out. It's coming up October 25th. Okay, so in the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about Iran and the protests that have been ongoing there for a while now. But first, something more from the news. As it turns out, the data point there is three. That is the number of winners of this year's Nobel Memorial Prize in the Economic Sciences. That's basically the Nobel Prize for Economics. The winners are Ben Bernanke, Douglas Diamond, and Philip Dibvig. Bernanke is probably a familiar figure for many people for his stint as U.S. Federal Reserve Chief during the great financial crisis that broke out in 2008 and the years after. But it's their work as economists, specifically their research on the nature of financial crises in general, that have made all three of them household names uh, among economists. Fifteen years ago, much of the world stood at the brink of a devastating economic crisis. Most of us were unprepared for it. However, a few academic economists were both prepared and worried. We thought we'd dig a bit into their award-winning ideas. We did this last year, in fact, as well, so maybe this will be a bit of a tradition for us. Um, so, Adam, let's start with Diamond and Dibvig, who work together. And it turns out it seems like Bernanke's work builds on theirs. So they research bank runs, uh, you know, bank failures triggered by depositors who suddenly and collectively decide to withdraw their money. I was surprised to see that their award-winning research only came out in 1983. I mean, I've been hearing about bank runs, I feel like, my whole life, or at least my whole adult life, and even as far back as seeing uh, It's a Wonderful Life, that old Frank Capra movie from the 50s seemed to involve a bank run. So did people really not understand how bank runs worked until 1983 when Diamond and Dipfick did their work? Yeah, my own personal popular culture illustration of bank runs is Mary Poppins with that extraordinary uh, moment when the little boy wants his, you know, five pence back and he precipitates a run in the city of London. I have to say, I don't want to sound kind of um, mean-spirited, but I find the award this year really a reminder of just how solipsistic the economics discipline is because they've been awarded the prize not really for some blinding insight that changes you know, our view of the world, but for shoehorning reality into economics. 
um, the practitioners have understood how bank runs work at least since the mid 19th century, right? I mean, basically, banks are inherently unstable structures which lend long and borrow, in other words, take deposits short. And this creates an obvious problem. And what banks do is to provide their depositors with liquid you know, assets in the form of deposits that they can draw at any given moment. And in exchange, you know, take that money, or at least on this reading of what banks do, and this is itself quite controversial, lend that money on. So there's a sort of, there's a major fracas going on in the world of FinTwitter about whether or not the Nobel Prize has essentially been awarded for what is it really a bad theory of how banks operate, this idea of loanable funds where savers deposit their money. But setting that aside, if we take what, you know, the, the diamond and Dibvik message at, at face value, what they're doing is providing a micro economic rationale for this inherently unstable structure, which, however, we know has existed for several centuries, is foundational to capitalism. And the significance of their model for the economics profession is that once you've got a model like this, then you can, as it were, legitimately model banking as a microeconomically rational activity of why it would make sense to intermediate between people who want liquid deposits and people who want to take out illiquid loans. And they provide a rationale for how this could operate and why banks could be able to charge for it and what the advantages of centralized monitoring of these kind of long-term loans would be. The second thing they do is to apply essentially game theoretic insights to the situation of why a bank run would emerge. Because basically, if everyone involved in the banking business is persuaded that the bank is stable and that people are not going to collectively run, then the system is stable on the assumption of those generally understood expectations. In other words, if we all expect withdrawals from the bank to be distributed randomly between depositors, then the bank is stable. And if the bank has got the right probability distribution with regard to deposits, it will be okay. What, however, can also happen, and this is literally what Mary Poppins and uh, its wonderful life described so beautifully, um, what can also happen is that expectations collectively change. And at that moment, whether or not the bank is solvent, and this too is not news, everyone's always understood this, that a thoroughly solvent bank can suddenly become completely dysfunctional if all of its depositors, simply because they think other depositors will withdraw money, want to withdraw their money. So if you move from a world in which there is general confidence to one in which there is no confidence, then no bank is stable. And what they do essentially is provide a fundamentally microeconomically sound framework for doing this. And Ben Bernanke's contribution, I mean, he literally just cites an early working paper in, a, in an article that he wrote, which put reality back and say, well, obviously, banking failures matter. We need to understand why they matter. And so that's what he did. And he cited their paper as providing a solidly microeconomically founded vision of how bank runs might happen, and then went on to spell out how when bank runs do happen, it damages the real economy, not just the monetary economy. So just to get into Diamond and Dibvig's work a bit more, I mean, is there research into bank runs? I mean, the way that depositors would be all asking for their money back at the same time, is that really an accurate description of how banks fail these days or even threaten to fail? It seems to me like banks often find themselves in major trouble before depositors ever even get involved. Yeah, I mean, the German economic journalist Wolfgang Munchau rather unkindly referred to this as the prize for boomer macro in the sense that it's 1980s papers, which largely speaking explain the Great Depression. 
So it belongs within that, the 1930s depression, in other words. So it really belongs in the universe of the baby boomer generation. That's perhaps a little unfair in the sense that the run logic, so the idea that there are two equilibria, one of which is functional and and Diamond and Dibbig would also claim efficient um, on the one hand, and then the other dysfunctional. That, of course, applies also to any other run situation. And it applies in 2008, in 2020, and 2022 in, in the London markets. Those are all run dynamics. Markets which are functional are given one set of expectations, become dysfunctional given another set of expectations. And those expectations are mutually reinforcing. In other words, if you believe someone's going to run, then you need to run too. And so everyone is better off believing that everyone is running. And so everyone runs. And we saw that in 2008 very much. What What is different, of course, is that in 2008, it wasn't depositors in the sense of It's a Wonderful Life or Mary Poppins who were running. Um, it was so-called wholesale money markets, which were, in other words, the giant professionally managed uh, pools of very short-term funding that banks were, and especially investment banks, were borrowing from. There's an irony in the fact that, you know, we're awarding a prize for models of bank failure at the time when banks really aren't failing. And that wasn't the problem in 2020. And it wasn't, it isn't the problem in Britain in 2022. It's the fixed income markets and the market-based models of finance that are founded on them that are really at the centre of modern um, financial instability. Yeah, maybe this brings us to Bernanke's research. His work seems to shed even more light on the relationship between banks and the real economy. Uh, And some of that work seems to describe a feedback loop that develops between asset prices uh, in general and corporate borrowing and their kind of investments in the economy. Is one of the takeaways of Bernanke's work that policymakers have an obligation to keep asset prices high uh, across the board? I don't think that would be quite fair to say. I think the implication is that a monetary policy works by way of asset prices. And this was an important insight, right? Because it isn't simply the impact on the marginal cost of saving or investing, which is the classic neoclassical vision of the relationship between saving and investment mediated by the interest rate. What Bernanke and co-authors argued was that interest rate increases could change the balance sheets of borrowers by affecting asset prices, and so they would not have the collateral to borrow with. And so there was a channel here for monetary policy to operate. Now, what the setting of your monetary policy should be at any given moment depends on a variety of other factors, notably, for instance, inflation. And as we're seeing in the current moment, raising interest rates to counter inflation may operate most powerfully by way of its impact on asset markets, which shrink the wealth, the balance sheets, the portfolios of companies, but also better off consumers and households. And so what Bernanke and his colleagues are doing are really spelling out the mechanisms through which monetary policy could operate. They're not, you know, in general, establishing the principle that at all times asset prices should be at the highest possible level. They're saying that when you use interest rates to control inflation or other aspects of the economy, look to the asset price effect to see how those interest rates will work. So maybe to take a step back here, it seems to me that all three of the winners of this year's award are describing a financial system that in various ways seems pretty fragile. I mean, basically unable to regulate itself uh, and yet kind of assign this 
vast responsibility in society. So where does the faith come from that policymakers can get this all under control or whether it's even worth the effort exactly? I mean, instead of jerry-rigging interventions to keep the financial system upright and, you know, to allow it to keep growing, why not intervene to make it smaller and, and more manageable? I mean, maybe a, a more general question is here, do economists ever even do any reflection in a kind of meta-economic way on whether the basic system they're describing makes sense in, in a basic way? Well, I mean, Diamond and Dibbig's work is too abstract to yield, I think, statements about the optimal size of the financial system. Um, hmm. I mean, apparently one of the implications of their model is that the best kind of financial system would have just one big bank. Um, and that's not the point of the model. The point of the model is to prove axiomatically uh, and to demonstrate from first principles why financial institutions exist and why they're unstable, right? Bernanke faced this issue absolutely head on um, because, you know, the, the the problem he was dealing with in 2008-9 was the too big to fail problem. The fact that the banks, um, you know, had to be bailed out or rather that they ended up really regretting not bailing out Lehman because their balance sheets were so gigantic and so interconnected and the risks that arose if you did not intervene were massive and, and very opaque. But somewhat surprisingly, I think Bernanke did not emerge, um, you know, in the aftermath of this as an advocate of restructuring of the banking system. I mean, perhaps one shouldn't say that's surprising. He is, he was, you know, a card-carrying member of the Republican Party after all, and was appointed by a Republican president. But that really is reflected in his judgments on this issue because he's made a repeatedly made a defence of precisely what you're referring to. In other words, an ad hoc continuation of regulation rather than more basic structural reform you know, this stress testing regime that was instituted from 2009 onwards, living wills where big complicated banks are asked in advance to describe how they're going to be wound up if they have to be wound up, all of that kind of mechanism. He adopts a kind of pragmatic approach, which says we need a process, you know, there's no, there's no one structural fix we can adopt. But what we need is a process through which we will make regulation and the risks associated of the, with the financial system less over time. And, and this refers to banks alone. Of course, we now know that the financial system has, has you know, grown in many other areas. Asset management is really the new frontier. And those are leviathans put by comparison with the banks. So, you know, we're talking about real monsters um, when we're talking about BlackRock and so on. So Bernanke's um, position is one of considerable conservatism. Yeah. And so finally, I guess I wanted to ask a bit more about how Bernanke as theorist compared with Bernanke as policymaker. Did his actions as central bank chief during the financial crisis reveal something about the financial system that his academic research failed to grasp? Well, I think the crucial thing is that Bernanke in 2008 was dealing with a meltdown in a banking system that totally unlike that of the 1930s. Um, and it took us a while to recognize that. But it was a market-based uh, banking system. So banks didn't take funds from regular depositors, the mom-and-pop type depositors, but borrowed them in, in wholesale markets. And it was the repo markets, ultimately, where the bond portfolios of the banks were being churned that failed. And that's what the central banks then had to address through quantitative easing interventions, which originally were proposed as ways of stimulating economies like the Japanese economy, which had hit the buffers in the early 1990s and had slumped into what seemed to be a permanent state of low-flation falling prices. And quantitative easing, unconventional monetary policy, the buying of assets by central banks was originally advocated as a form of you know, stimulus policy 
um, it still it served that function after 2008, but fundamentally its prime role was to stabilize the stabilize the financial system that had become totally unbalanced. And if the Nobel Committee had been interested in rewarding economic thinkers who'd actually address that problem, right, the problems of the 21st century banking system, I mean, my my vote would have been that they should have given the prize to the entire economics team of the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, who were the people who actually spelled out how the logic of this system worked, this new system, the 21st century system. Um, and you might think of somebody like Hyung Song Shin, as the, who's one of the leading thinkers in the macro financial, which is what's known as macro financial economics. I mean, this really does feel like a very conservative, retrospective prize, to be honest. Well, we will leave it there for now and be back in a second to talk about Iran. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we're back. The next data point is 15. That is the average age of the people who have been arrested in the protests that erupted in Iran a month ago. That's according to Iran's own security forces. In videos being shared on social media, women are seen leading the protests in Iran, taking off their headscarves, chanting slogans, and calling for an end to compulsory hijab. Anti-government protests have swept across Iran in reaction to the death of a 22-year-old woman in the custody of the regime's morality police. 
protests were triggered by the death of Masse Amini, a 22-year-old woman from the Kurdistan region of Iran who came to the capital of Tehran to visit her brother and was killed while there at the hands of Iran's morality police for the apparent crime of not wearing a headscarf in sufficiently modest fashion. Women in Iran set their headscarves on fire in fury. They are tired of the morality police beating them up and the Islamic Republic leaders who police their every move. Iranian security forces have tried to crack down. Dozens of people have been killed. But the protests have now expanded to include ever more people from different walks of life. And it's clear they've become a potentially existential threat to the regime itself. So we wanted to look at how all this intersects with economic questions. And to start with, Adam, the question of the role of Iranian women. They aren't necessarily facing totalitarian repression in the sense that we'd think of from fascist regimes that we've discussed in previous podcasts. Uh, They do have access to the job market. They're overrepresented in higher education by some statistics. But their civil rights are clearly curtailed by the Constitution's outsourcing of various parts of law to Sharia doctrine. So does social and economic equality for women demand a wholesale constitutional change in Iran? Or are there examples of explicitly Islamic states that manage to treat women equally? Yeah, it is really a remarkable fact, the way in which women protesters have been at the heart of the current wave of protests in Iran. Women, life, freedom is the main rallying cry on the streets in in recent weeks. Uh, I think, I mean, we should start by acknowledging, shouldn't we, that there's in fact no modern society which, quote, unquote, treats women equally, right? There's no society without Mm. a pay gap between men and women. There's no modern society in which one could say the substance of equality was really fully achieved, not in the US, not in China, not in India, not in the welfare states of most of Europe. I mean, the Scandinavian countries probably come closest, but even they, you know, do not achieve full parity in terms of pay, let alone wealth and so on. So, you know, that's, important to kind of frame this. Um, but Iran is definitely a special case. Um, it's a special case, I, 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 you know, I like the way you put it in the sense that it exhibits some truly crass contrasts. It's a society in which women are, relatively speaking, very well educated um, compared to its income level, right? So 71% of women over the age of 25 have at least some secondary schooling compared to 76% of men. So both the levels and the gap the levels are very high and the gap's relatively small. And as you say, women are heavily represented in Iran's universities. But at the same time, women's labor market participation in Iran is shockingly low. I mean, it's only 14%. I was kind of dumbfounded when I found this number. That's half the Saudi Arabian participation rate, which is closer to 30%. It's roughly on a level with Afghanistan pre-Taliban. So it's really extraordinarily low. And I think that has quite a lot to do also with the extraordinary frustration of young women in Iran because they do get education, but then are essentially pushed out of the labor market. I mean, the number's so low that I'm kind of baffled. Is it perhaps something to do with the formal labor market in Iran? But in any case, 14% is the number the UN takes at face value. But Iran has very low maternal mortality rates, like 16 women die for 100,000 live births, which is lower than in the United States right now. But it has a very high rate of early marriage and therefore of of adolescent pregnancy. And only 5% of parliamentarians in Iran are are women. So you have this sort of really stark 
contrast between a society which in key respects is modernizing in which women you know, are pushing uh, forward and uh, claiming space and on the other hand, systematic exclusions. Are other Islamic gender regimes imaginable? Absolutely, they are. I mean, uh, a whole variety uh, of different options. The most remarkable, again, the, the numbers really sort of flabbergasted me, is the UAE. I mean, at least on paper, it ranks 11th lowest in the UN's index of gender disparity. So, you know, it's in the middle of the European states. It's, it's really remarkable. It has uh, 50% female representation in Parliament, very high levels of female education. But then, of course, it's a, you know, a model petro state. But several of the other Gulf states as well dramatically outrank Iran in terms of hmm. women's participation in society and politics. But there's no question at all that Islamic culture, politics are fully compatible with regimes which are much less exclusionary and much less discriminatory against women than the Iranian regime. So, sure, you know, revolutionary transformation of the Iranian constitution would make a difference. Any number of different transformations could. I think the vast majority of protesters can see ways in which the Iranian, even the Islamic Republic there, could be modified in ways which, which would have removed these absurd and in many ways just simply dysfunctional uh, discriminations against women. Hmm. So there's been a call, uh, both in Iran and on social media very prominently, to workers in Iran to assist the protesters with a general strike, as it's being referred to. Some shop owners in the bazaars in various cities, including Tehran, have started to oblige, closing up their shops. I've seen this term before, general strike, and I'm, I'm curious, Adam, if you could help explain what the theory of the general strike is exactly. I mean, what differentiates it from a sectoral strike from this broader phenomenon? And, and would the participation of the Bazaris, this class of, of shop owners, qualify on its own? Bazaris seem to occupy a special role in the Iranian political economy, or at least in Iranian history, going back to the 1950s when there was a coup that the Bazaris were involved in setting up strikes and also going back to the Islamic Revolution of 1979. So yeah. What, what should we be thinking about the Bazaris and their participation here? Yeah, so a general strike is is a sort of non plus ultra of strikes, right? So uh, it's not a matter of one particular group of workers involved in a struggle with a particular employer, but of workers in general um, demonstrating in favour of a particular cause. It could be universal suffrage or it could be, you know, austerity. And indeed, in Iranian history, it's been it's been a highly significant uh, theme. I mean, in terms of the logic of general strikes, as you think of it worldwide, the, the the group that classically, as it were, leads the charge in Iran are the the petrochemical workers. Right? Mm. So, in the in the oil refineries of Iran, um, when they come out in on strike, as it were, it, it, it hailed as it were the true collective mobilization of the Iranian working class. The Bazaris are actually a somewhat incongruous group to be engaged in general striking, right? Because they're actually petty bourgeois merchants. Um, market, they're not workers. They're, they're, they're generally speaking, self-employed um, merchants. But they have played a very prominent role in Iranian history all the way back. I mean, you mentioned the 1950s, but it goes all the way back to the constitutional revolution of you know 1905 through 1911, that the, the first emergence of modern politics in in um, what was then Persia, you know, modern Iran, 
But as you say, the 1950s and then crucially during the anti-Shah protests of 78, 79, and even the physical structure of the bazaar was a sort of redoubt of anti-Shah resistance because you can hide people in the bazaar. You, it's such a, a you know rabbit warren of, of small shops and alleyways that um, even the Shahs, uh, you know, fearsome secret police were not able to fully penetrate it. But the logic is really quite complicated because as petty bourgeois, small shopkeepers and merchants, they're actually deeply aligned with the Islamic uh, Republic and the Ayatollah Khomeini's regime. So they then became almost loyalist bastions of, of the regime, quite conservative in their cultural politics. And so it's all the more significant to see them swinging now into at least episodic uh, solidarity with protest movements mm-hmm. led by radical young women in high schools and universities. That's not necessarily where you'd expect to, I think, to see the Bazaari uh, merchants lining up. And I think it points to the wide range of issues on which the Iranian regime is struggling right now because the bazaaris are you know furious at taxes and inflation and the general mismanagement of the economy and so the civil rights abuses and this violence are directed towards young women as sort of the final straw if you like so if these protests do continue and they escalate how should we think about the economics of transitioning away from an authoritarian regime the Iranian regime right now controls so much of the economy. Would a sudden regime collapse represent an economic shock that could impair Iran's material condition for years, possibly? And does the prospect of that kind of collapse give more incentive to the regime to fight? And yeah, would that suggest in general that it's in everyone's interest to have a more gradual transition of some sort? I think there are certainly lessons to be learned from the experience of Eastern Europe after 1989 in this regard, right? That that um, over-optimistic expectations of a sudden shift, the demolishing of a planned economy, should be tempered by an understanding of quite how much damage uh, a transition like that does. I mean, it's also important to recognise that at least until the latest phase of sanctions, so the last 10 years or so of intensified American sanctions, the Iranian revolution had had a very substantial effect in reducing poverty amongst the majority of the Iranian population at the time, which was still rural. And so through the early 2010s, the Iranian regime and its popularity was to a considerable extent founded on its success in you know, to a considerable extent, abolishing the most extreme forms of poverty experienced by Iranian society. The big anxiety about the transition would surely be, as it was in much of Eastern Europe, that as you strip away the accretions of the planned economy, you also strip away the welfare safety net that sustains large parts of the population, the most vulnerable parts of the population above the poverty line. And the situation now, though, over the last 10 years has shifted rather considerably because the the combined impact of sanctions and inflation has substantially attrited that welfare safety net. So another reason, I think, to be anxious about an overly dramatic transition would be that Iranian society is in a pretty fragile state right now. You know, the poverty rates are way much, much higher than they were 10 years ago in proportional terms. And um, so a process of unraveling the existing structures would i think put millions of people at risk i mean one wouldn't one wouldn't want to 
shrink from you know transition or change in the regime for that reason alone but it certainly is something which on the basis of east european experience one would have to be very concerned about and presumably it would also create reservoirs of resistance and reservoirs of of support for you know more conservative interpretations of you know the mission of islamic economic and social policy which are very real i think that's the point to really take away is that the the regime's critique of the Shah's uh, order had real consequences in terms of the distribution of resources. Uh, so it is now a regime under absolutely massive pressure from the outside. The, you know, the slogan under which the Iranian economy operates is the so-called resistance economy. It's a regime shot through with corruption and insider self-dealing. All of that is true. But if one engaged in a dramatic overthrow of the regime in its current state, you would really have to be concerned about how vulnerable substantial segments of the population would be. They've already been under huge pressure in recent decades, and that would intensify in the process of a transition. Longer term, one can imagine much better scenarios for the Iranian economy, but the short run, I think, would be potentially a very serious shock. Yeah, I'd like to sort of end on that general point. Obviously, Iran is not coming close to meeting its economic potential right now, Curious if you could speculate on what role Iran could be playing in the world if it did, in fact, meet that economic potential. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be underestimated. It is, according to purchasing power parity numbers, um, so adjusting for the cost of living, the, the world's 23rd largest economy. I think the answer to your question is one could easily imagine it as a candidate member for the G20 or an expanded G20. Mm. I mean, it should it should sit alongside Turkey as one of the anchors of the Middle Eastern economy. And unlike the Gulf states, it's a large population and a highly diversified economy at this point. Um, you know, the future of the Iranian economy, one would hope, would not lie simply in the revival of the petrochemical business, which, if sanctions were removed, um, could, of course, expand rather dramatically and quite quickly. Iran has $100 billion in assets frozen abroad under the sanctions regime. It could be exporting 2 million barrels of oil per day uh, over and above what it currently does, which would earn it, you know, at current prices, about $70 billion a year. I mean, it would no doubt benefit enormously from the lifting of sanctions. But beyond, as it were, simply the revival of the petrostate, it has the potential to be a kind of Germany, I think, of the Middle East with a very strong engineering base, with a highly educated population. And that, I think, is really the tragedy of the current situation, that Iran is, of course, a major geopolitical player in the region, uh, but it does it on uh, an economy which is fettered and, and operating well below its potential. Well, maybe that's a potential rallying cry for the protesters. Uh, I don't know how inspiring it is, but maybe that would they, we should be the Middle East Germany, uh, something that could rally people. But yeah, we do need to leave it there for now. I think uh, I can say we wish uh, the protesters all the best. Hope they stay safe. But uh, otherwise, yeah, we will leave it there for now. We've both had colds. Maybe you've noticed that. But uh, I think we'll be both in our normal speaking voices next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tooze, but news and analysis from around the world, 
consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.